there, everybody. What is going on? Welcome once again to the Everyday Missionary Podcast, episode 283. And yes, I am on the other side of that giant holiday called Halloween. Made it through last night, made it to this morning, alive and well on November 1st, All Saints Day, apparently. And uh, man, that was, a, that was a night last night. Had a great time. Went out with the grandbabies, uh, pounding the pavement, just trying to gin up some chocolate and candy, and uh, the community did not fail us at all. In fact, nowadays, the game has changed, man. It used to be like on my day, you would go out, you get like a little like sliver of something. Man, nowadays, people give away like not just full candy bars, which happens. They give away like toys, like full-on toys. My grandkids walked away with like giant cars and stuff like that. So the game is completely just elevated, right? Everybody's in it to win it. But had a great time doing that. Uh, My grandkids went as Mario and Luigi. uh, And I didn't realize how popular that was going to be this year. But with the Mario movie coming out, uh, there was Marios everywhere. There was like dad Marios and mom Marios and little kid Marios, boys and girls and everything between just all the Marios everywhere. And uh, so my grandkids jumped on that bandwagon as well. My granddaughter actually decided that's what they were going to do. And my grandson just has to go along with whatever it is she decides because she is the boss for sure. So like last year, she went as a witch and made him go as a cat because a witch needs an accessory. This year, she wanted to be Mario. So he has to be Luigi. And I already think she's got a plan for next year too. Like, I'm going to be this, and he's automatically going to be that. He's just chilling, man. He's not even quite two yet, so he just kind of goes with the territory of whatever she uh, decides to instruct, and he just he just executes, man. He's he's a good soldier that way. So anyway, I had a great time doing all of that. But now we are here to do a podcast of the day. And actually, it's the timing of things right now made me think about something that I thought it would make the theme of the day. Uh, and it's going to seem like a strange theme. It's even going to feel like a backhanded compliment to Christianity. And I don't quite mean it that way. I'm, I'm pretty sincere about the, the topic that I'm thinking about today. But what made me think about it is the fact that yesterday was what's called Reformation Day. And last year, I kind of had a snarky podcast on Reformation Day, which I still stand behind 100%. Um, so I don't know if it was really snarky, but I think sometimes it's like we celebrate these things and, and I go like, well, do you know the history of the thing that we're celebrating? Because it's not nearly as sensationalistic. It's not nearly as like a line in the sand and planting a flag on the mountain of theology that's new and everything else. It was kind of like, Meh, really? Uh, the whole idea that Luther taxed these 95 ideas on the door, like that wasn't some clarion call, really. He was just kind of going like, hey, uh, listen, we should talk about some of this stuff. And at that point, he was firmly Catholic and everything else, and he just wanted to have a discussion. And eventually, over the course of time, it sort of evolved into things as it did. But I thought about that particular event from a slightly different point of view. And so this is kind of the backhanded compliment of what I've come to maybe least personally notice about Christianity. Uh, And that is, there's probably two spaces where it's at its best, Uh, One space is when it's at its most right, you know, where uh, it's most like Christ, it's most like kingdom, it's most like really absorbing that the Sermon on the Mount is something to be executed and done and lived out, not just like, oh, we can't achieve it, so we need grace. Um, But like, no, Jesus actually gave it to us so that we would actually go and do this thing to change the world in this upside down way, right? So I think that's one space in which Christianity is at its best. 
And honestly, at times, I sort of lament just how opposite American evangelicalism is at times from that kingdom call in the Sermon on the Mount. That's where times I have my own grief and frustration and sadness is even this week there was a report kind of put out about, you know, the different Christian groups and culture and that evangelicals, in particular white evangelicals, are the most warm to the utilization of violence to restore American greatness, in particular, like internally, like civil war and things like that. They're the most apt to say, we may need an authoritarian leader who uses violence to get America Christian again. And I'm like, again, Jesus and that are on different planets at that point. And just reading that report just to no end was like, no, we cannot do this. This is so unchristlike in the name of Christ. It's crazy, right? But when Christianity is at its best, when it's actually acting like Jesus, thinking, feeling, loving, caring, investing like Jesus, man, there is no better space, right? But the second one is kind of related to my grief, and that is Christianity is also at its best when it admits its wrongness, when it actually confesses its own sins. That's also where it's at its best, all right? And here's the thing I was thinking about in relationship to the history of Christianity and and even maybe the holiday of yesterday. Um, Christianity, its history, weirdly enough, is a history of admitting its mistakes. It's a history of admitting its faults, its theological flaws, um, its moral... um, justifications of immorality, like it was immoral, but it justified its immorality and eventually it realizes it, it was wrong. And and part of that makes me think about the fact that there are still things then that we will be repenting for as Christians and say we were wrong for that. And as I've really scanned just kind of my own brain and my own um, limited information uh, of my, my Christian heritage of 2000 years, I, I go, there has just been repeated benchmarks of Oops, we shouldn't have done that. Oops, we shouldn't have done that. Oops, we shouldn't have pushed that. Oops, we shouldn't have believed that. Oops, we shouldn't have verified that. We shouldn't have vilified them, whatever it is. And there is a lot of failure in the history of Christianity. And when it's at its best is when it can acknowledge those failures. And so, man, even when you go kind of way back into the system, there were certainly some of the councils and groups that as they were trying to reconcile what authentic Christianity was. In that process, there was some political jockeying, there was some power grabbing, and there was some well-intended good people trying to raise important questions that were just frankly vilified, just vilified. And, you know, especially in that time period where you still had Christianity operating in kind of a, uh, uh, an honor-shame model, uh, they would utilize shame as a part of the excommunicating process for certain thinkers because, hey, you're thinking of ways that we don't support. Like when you go back and read what they were trying to, you know, push or or, or figure out or raise questions on, you know, I, I you, you look and go, those are fair questions. Those These were difficult things. Like for the first several hundred years of Christianity, the challenge was trying to figure out what is Christianity, really? What can we all agree on? And that's why when you look at like the Nicene Creed or things of that nature, it's small, man. It takes up like a half a page and and there's very little to it. And that's because it was that complicated for Christians to come to consensus on things. And in that process of complication, sometimes people were vilified, people were excluded, people were just marginalized in the process. And now we kind of look back and go, yeah, that probably could have been done better. And so that's kind of that early stage stuff. 
But then many of us know kind of how Christianity continued to evolve when it merged the church with the state and it became the Holy Roman Church, the Roman Catholic Church, kind of aligned with the Holy Roman Empire. In essence, it became kind of one. And that's where you saw all the corruption of the church. And they thought now it's about money and it's about power and it's about militaries. It's about control. It's about the political structure. And the church just became incredibly worldly in the name of Christ. And that was a fatal flaw to the church. But that went on for a really long time, right? And then kind of in that space, you have all those other crazy things, like you have the Crusades and you have the Inquisition and just things where Christians were justifying their actions as, hey, in the name of Christ, you can do really terrible things as long as it's in the name of Christ. If you're doing it for Christ's purposes, then it's okay. And now we look back and we're like, well, it's a good thing we finally realized like, hey, to try to be in bed with the political structures of this world is trying to merge the kingdom of Christ with the kingdom of Babylon. And you you can't mix them. They don't go together. You cannot crush them into one placement. Um, but yet still, we see it today, even in our evangelical spaces where we're trying to do it again. We're always trying to do it. Like, nope, we, we need that authoritarian leader. We need that politician who's going to be a thug, do stuff not like Jesus because we got to do it in the name of Christ, you know? And we we get in bed with the wrong thing. And it is the ultimate idolatrization, right? It is just us saying, you know what? We got to use the stuff of this world to manifest and materialize the stuff of Christ in this world. And it doesn't work, right? And one day, future generations are going to be like, well, that's where we screwed up back then too. And we repented for it, right? But then I continue to go forward. So I think about even like Martin Luther. Here's another example. So this goes back to yesterday and kind of this Reformation Day. Where he's like, hey, we need to repent of the way we've been doing church. We've got indulgences. We have this idea of legalism and works. And the authority of the church is too powerful. And so he does this thing that's very jarring to the system at the time. And basically what he was pushing is we need to acknowledge we've done it wrong. Christianity's been wrong yet again as it has been in times past. And now we're doing it right, right? And that's kind of the way he looked at it. But then in time, even Luther was doing it wrong. And the Lutherans were doing it wrong. And pretty soon, they're willing to execute people over baptism. Like, you don't believe in our form of baptism. We're going to execute you because now we have the power of the state to do the very same kinds of things. And so pretty soon, even Lutheranism and Luther was kind of corrupted, right? And then we go, well, okay, we finally learned, like, we don't kill people over baptism issues anymore. Like, yay, look at us. We're so good now. We don't kill people over a doctrinal matter, right? But those are the things that happened. And and you, you had the Anabaptists who were majorly persecuted for their beliefs against the church. And there the church finally said, oh, yeah, we've done this wrong. We need to repent of that. Or how the church was very opposed to many scientific revolutions at first and Copernicus was not the most liked guy in the world. And people like to debate Galileo's issues with the church. And I'm going to split the difference and say it wasn't as bad as we make it. And yet the church was still bad about it. Like both of those are equally true. And so eventually then the church goes, ah, yep, we were wrong about that. In fact, it was just been in the last, I think maybe 30 years. I'm trying to remember if it was Pope John Paul. I remember, if, I think it was John Paul, um, that issued that the Catholic Church now was embracing evolution, saying, okay, we were wrong about fighting that for a while, you know, and there's been other Christians who also have been like, yeah, that was a battle we shouldn't have fought. Not everybody agrees on that, I know, but and again, this is just another example of where the church says, 
yep, we were wrong about that thing. We were wrong about that other thing, too, and that other thing, and then that other thing. I mean, I think about in our own culture, um, slavery. Like, Christians were just dead set certain that, hey, what slavery was fine, slavery was good, slavery was God-ordained and God-commanded. And honestly, if you go back and you look at the Bible— it's pretty tough to refute their claims, all right? Like, as far as, like, you can understand why the South had the position that it did because they're like, slavery is in the Bible. It's clear. Paul defends slavery. And if you go back to the Mosaic Law, it commands, like, chattel slavery. It actually says, when you go into the land, take those people, make them your own. They will never be freed, and you pass them down in the will from generation to generation. And if they die, here's how much it costs to replace them because they're just product, you know? So from the Southerners' perspective, they're like, well, this seems really biblical. But now we look and go, well, you didn't see the full picture. Yeah, you were abusing all sorts of understanding there. And so the church had to repent of slavery. Uh, the churches had to repent of even civil rights issues at first, where there was many in the church that didn't believe that the black community should have certain kinds of rights or freedoms or allowances or whatever else. Uh, just basic racism that has been within Christianity at times. And we go, yeah, that was wrong. We shouldn't have done that. Some uh, quadrants of Christianity still have anti-Semitism, right? So like the kind of the white Christian nationalists, what this anti-Semitic bent to it. And we go, "Ah, that's wrong too. And again, I'm just making the point that there's been so many times where we have been wrong and we've had to admit our wrong. And that is also when we're at our best, right? And maybe I say all of this today for this podcast because I always want us to value repentance. And That comes in a lot of forms, right? So there's the personal repentance that we all know we need to engage in when we've wronged a person or we've wronged God, we've crossed a line, we've missed the mark, you know, whatever it might be, and we need to go through an alteration. And part of that alteration is an acknowledgement of either our pride or our hardness or our foolishness or our close-mindedness or just the fact that we have been co-opted by the culture that we live in and we thought things were good until we realized things are bad and we then have to take that bold step of acknowledging we've mishandled that and we need to do it different. I mean, I know even for me recently, having done some of the issues in the LGBTQ plus conversations where um, just historically the church has not been terribly gracious to that community, regardless of where we're looking at the Bible on that or whether we're agreeing or disagreeing on maybe how culture is handling that, like our tone and temperament and kind of our coldness or harshness or lack of loving of neighbor, like all of those things have been such to where now you have certain Christian groups that are still very orthodox and traditional in their views, but they're saying, we have treated this community terrible. We have not been like Christ. We have not been gracious and understanding. We have not tried to meet them in the world that they live in and love them in the space that they are at. We have been anything but trying to accommodate a relationship with people in that camp or category. And so once again, you now have Christians saying, yep, we didn't do that right too. There is a long, long list of our mistakes and failures and sins in the name of Christ And again, when we're at our best is when we acknowledge that. And I believe that's even a part of modern apologetics today. So um, if you're not familiar with the term apologetics, it's this idea of defending the Christian faith. That's, it's the origin of the word from Greek. Um, So it's, it's less about making an apology as like saying, I'm sorry. And it was more about kind of having a defense of the faith. 
But I actually believe nowadays that much of Christianity, if it's to gain traction in a fresh new way within society, it actually needs to be that other version, which is apologizing literally for the many mistakes that we have made, for the many things that we have miscalled and the many things that we have mishandled, the many things we've gotten behind and supported that were just not like Christ, whether those be political things or social things or moral things or theological things, whatever it might be, to say, you know what? Yep, that wasn't good. That wasn't right. That wasn't healthy. See, some people look at this idea of apologizing for Christian failure and they see it as weakness or they go, well, the world never knew about that until you publicly acknowledged your failure in that. And why did you bring it up? If they didn't know, they wouldn't have never known. And therefore we should just shut up and not acknowledge it. And maybe they won't realize it. I'm like, no, no, no. I talk to a lot of disbelieving people. They know. They really do know. It's a part of their hangup. Or even people that have left the church. You talk to people that have stepped away or kind of de-churched themselves or whatever else and say, well, what were the reasons for that? Um, and there's going to be a number of them. And most of them are re- related to, I just couldn't continue to be a part of a group that continues to do X. Now, some of those things are are unamendable on our part. In other words, there's a certain things that are our core Christian beliefs our core Christian doctrinal matters. And, you know, Jesus said, hey, you're going to, you're going to get beat up on those things, right? You're going to get beat up on things that are distinctly things that if you remove them are no longer than Christian, you know, like there's going to be that in there. But as I watch so often, I think most of the persecution that comes our way as in particular evangelical Christians in society is sort of self-inflicted wounds because we're not being quite as much like Christ as we could be. And that reminds me of Peter in his first letter where he's like, hey man, if you suffer for doing good, that's okay. If you suffer because you're being difficult or you're being unloving or you're being not like Christ in the name of Christ, which is again, some of the the dangers that I see now, um, like, hey, we're willing to be violent to establish Christianity. Like that's just honestly, we follow a pacifist leader. I don't know how to break that to us. Whether we're pacifists or not, we follow a pacifist leader. Um, he clearly had the power for self-defense. When he faces the cross, throughout his entire earthly ministry, he had the power of radical self-defense. You talk about concealed carry. He's like, I got a whole legion of angels just chilling behind the veil of this reality between the two parallel worlds. Uh, that's concealed carry, man. And he's like, I, I'm, 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 I'm not pulling that. Why? Because he was a pacifist leader. He uses pacifism to basically deal with the problem of sin in the world. He used pacifism to defeat his enemy. He did not take up a sword. He took up a cross, right? He took up his own personal sacrifice and death. And so when I hear people speaking of using violence or control or power or authority to maintain Christianity... I just go, that's something we're going to have to repent of too. Because again, the way of Jesus is very different. It's just very different. And I think the more we're acknowledging our failures, the more we're acknowledging maybe those in our own shared camp that are going down roads that are not like Christ and we're apologizing for them as well. And we're concurring with either the deconstructed or disbelieving world that yes, our brothers and sisters over there are flawed in those thinking. We love them too, but they're flawed. And we agree with you. That's flawed thinking. I think the more we will gain credibility because I think many people, they're just wanting to know that we acknowledge those flaws too as they see them and we're not gaslighting them. Like, no, Christians are just always more right than non-Christians and believers are always more aware than disbelievers. And uh, when I am a, a Christ-like person, I see the most clearly of anybody and you all don't. Like, that. that's not really reality. In fact, 
another thing I think that's distinctly healthy about Christianity is when it comes across as humble more than it comes across as certain. When it comes across as gracious more than it comes across as conquering or commanding. You know, there's something attractive about that because the rest of the world does that. And we are meant to be different in our world. We're meant to bring a different thing to it. And I think one of the best things we can do is we can bring repentance. We can bring the acknowledgement of our own group's flaws. Maybe it's not what you or I did. Maybe it's just what some of our brothers and sisters are doing that make a bad name for it all. But we need to openly acknowledge that, openly repent of that, openly want to correct that. And I would also say in love and kindness, openly want to confront those flawed elements of thinking at times, because that's what's getting the press right now. What's getting the press is really bad Christianity uh, in the name of, of more politics, I think, than Christianity at times. And and we have to be the counter agent to that, not as being putzes ourselves, not as being like jerks in a different way. I think we just have to go like, hey, we want to stand for what is truly right. Sometimes that's standing for what's right in the face of the world, but other times it's standing for what is right in the face of the structures of organized religion and the church. Because if there's anything that is true is that organized religion and organized secularism are are both very corruptible systems. They they really are. I've, I've, I've been in organized religion officially, like on the salary of organized religion for 30 years, 30 plus years at this point. And, and I've seen many instances of, of earthliness in the name of Christ. Uh, I, I've seen plenty of corruption in the organizations, just as much as in the secular world as well. And this is why then, for those of us who say, no, I want it to be the, the Christianity at its best, then at its best is where, again, we're doing kingdom-minded stuff, Jesus-centric stuff, um, not corrupted by the agendas of this world stuff. And then we're acknowledging the number of failures and power grabs and authority abuses and everything else that happens. And we're saying to the world, we grieve with you in that. See, I, I think about this even with Nehemiah. So Israel blows itself up, right, through following all the false gods, and God puts them into exile in Babylon. And then over a hundred years later, honestly, it's this long period of time, and we don't realize, we always think about, you know, the exile is like 80 years, but there's a lot more moving pieces to it. And so there's there's this really long period of time, and everybody that kind of blew up Israel is dead at that point. And then Nehemiah rolls in, and what you see at the beginning of his story is he is repenting for the sins of his people. Now, he didn't commit those. He didn't do those. But he acknowledges, hey, I am a part of this collective heritage, and we, and by that also me somehow, is guilty of that, and I want to acknowledge it to make it right. I think it's the same thing for us, because that's when we're at our best. That's when we're not gaslighting the world as though Christians poop don't stink and we're acknowledging that's why we need the grace of God and it's acknowledging why we need to grow in the grace of God and we know we need to, to grow in being gracious because we have been touched by the grace of God and part of that is acknowledging we've not always been gracious and we've not always been good and we've not always been moral and we've not always been kind and we've not always been just, which I think justice even and much of our failures has been a critical component of that. Or even we hide behind justice, like we need to have law and order justice. 
And actually what we're really talking about is something other than true justice for all, especially for the marginalized, the poor, the weak, and the kind of the disenfranchised. Like we don't always fight for their justice. We kind of fight for our more comfortable middle-class justice. Um, and, and we need to say, no, I'm going to fight for the justice of all. I'm going to fight for balanced scales for all uh, because that is the right thing to do. And I'm going to acknowledge where we do it wrong and where we're putting ourselves ahead of others. And even that, we will repent for that because we have a kingdom mission. And that kingdom mission, especially in the gospel of Luke, is for the least of these. It's for the lowest of the low. It's for all persons everywhere to be elevated in the love and grace of Christ. And that's what we get to do. And so when we're at our best is that twofold thing where we're living it like Jesus and we're acknowledging when we don't and we're openly repenting of those times that we don't. And we're openly kind of pointing out when others don't who don't want to repent of those things but want to defend those things. We at least say to the world around us, we think that is not like Christ. And we are saddened that our brothers and sisters are doing that and we want to model something better. See, I think when we have that kind of ownership and that kind of focus, which is very uncomfortable, right? It's very otherworldly. It's not done like the stuff of this world. But when we do it that way, that's what's compelling. That's what gets the attention of a disbelieving world. And when we really own that space and do those things, then you know what, my friends? We will be even more effective everyday missionaries.